Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Elsie Kennedy. Residents to the east of a large bushfire burning about an hour out of Canberra have been told it's too late to leave their properties. The Rural Fire Service says it's moving east towards the town of Braidwood and the small community... For a lot of Australians, that was what last summer sounded like. The 2019-2020 bushfire season here was unprecedented. Over 12 million hectares were burnt and nearly 3 billion frogs, reptiles, birds and mammals were killed. It's now a bit over 12 months since last year's horror bushfire season started. And today on Earth Matters, we're going to be hearing about lessons we've learnt from those fires and what we need to do in the future to protect not just property and assets, but also Australia's biodiversity and our growing list of threatened species. These bushfires were a dreadful event, um, but they were also an opportunity. Um, they show us the future, a dystopia, which we really do need to pre- try to prevent. Today, we're going to be hearing from a panel of experts about how we prepare for Australia's climate-changed future. The panel was organised by the Threatened Species Recovery Hub in September and includes Threatened Species Recovery Hub Deputy Director John Wonowski, Bundjalung Man and CEO of Fire Sticks Alliance, Oliver Costello, Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub Leader David Caroli, and Bush Heritage Ecologist Vanessa Westcott. First up, we're going to hear from John Wanowski about the impact of last summer's bushfires on threatened species and what this means for the future. I'd like to uh, start this by extending my sympathies to the individuals and communities who've suffered in last season's fires. And I'd also like to pay tribute to the many people who responded to these fires and whose responses have very much helped um, the recovery of nature in Australia. So thank you very much for those people. Uh, Human history is... uh, littered with uh, setbacks and disasters, and um, our society is the better when we learn from those mistakes and errors. And this is essentially the subject of my talk, um, how we should learn from um, the setback that was the 2019-2020 fires. We need to review what worked and what didn't. We need to look to the future. We need to identify what we most value. We need to understand the causal factors and try to change them. Uh, The 2019-20 fires burnt about 12 million hectares in southern and eastern Australia, as shown by the red on this map, Uh, but notably with exceptional severity, extent and duration, Um, and they left very few areas unburnt. Um, And the timing of this uh, webinar is actually quite uh, uh, interesting anyway, because it's 12 months now since the fires started in Queensland last year, and we're now gearing up far too soon. Uh, for the next year's fire season. So we need to learn from the mistakes or learn from the last fires. Um, Important to note that um, driven by the same circumstances, the extreme fire events are becoming more commonplace in many other parts of the world as well. So we're we're, um, facing a global challenge. Um, The Australian landscape has long adapted to fire and fire is very much part of the ecology of plants and animals in Australia, but these fires were way beyond normal. These fires were, and their impacts were way beyond anything I've experienced in my lifetime and their impacts on biodiversity is greater than any other single event in our lifetime. So they've affected a vast number, many hundreds of threatened species, um, including many species whose entire range or entire known population was burnt in these fires. They've set back years of work by individuals, community groups and governments on the recovery of nature in Australia. 
and they've severely affected many other species that we thought previously were secure. Um, and now many of those species will be imperiled. Uh, here's two examples of species showing the contrast in fire impacts. Uh, the Capita rock skink is restricted to a really small part of northern New South Wales um, and is one of many cases of uh, highly localised species which have been severely impacted by these fires. But in contrast, the yellow belly gliders um, got a really large distribution from uh, southern Victoria to Queensland. And we'd have thought with a distribution like that, that, that species would be very safe. But it's extensive forest habitat has been really severely affected by these recent fires. So that species which we thought was safe is no longer considered safe. And it's an interesting case because it's got this yellow belly glider has a really slow reproductive rate. It requir requires intact, large, extensive forests. It requires hollows to live in and it's got a very poor dispersal ability. So it will take decades, if not centuries, for that species to return to the populations it had 12 months ago, simply because of the impacts of these fires. We know about 3 billion individual vertebrate animals um, were in areas that were burnt by these fires and most of those animals will have been killed by these fires. The really extensive conservation network, the jewel in Australia's conservation system, uh, much of that was affected by these fires, including World Heritage Sites, including um, burning in many ecological communities and vegetation types that really rarely burn in Australia and are ill-suited to burning. Uh, but it's not this single fire alone. Fires um, got to be contextualised by its sequences. Um, so many Australian birds and uh, plants and animals um, require a long time between fire. Uh, the interval between those fires is critical. They won't build up populations subsequent to fires if there's another fire too soon after the last one. So here's an example here with the noisy scrub bird, which requires decades after fire before it will recover. And what we're seeing at the moment is diminishing intervals between successive fires, which is making it really difficult for species to build their populations back up and recover. I'll briefly touch on some of the conservation responses um, to these fires, what was done. And what was done, I think, was extraordinarily um, magnificent effort, really exemplary in many cases. I touch on a picture of koalas, not because I particularly like koalas, but because of the symbolism of the imagery and the power of that imagery. Um, pictures of uh, badly injured, burnt animals, galvanised global and local and national concern. And that really very much stimulated the government's response and the, the recognition that we all care about nature in Australia and globally. We have something of value which we need to consider and conserve. I think the government response was exemplary. This is my um, mind map of what was done. Um, there was a really early commitment to recovery of nature. There was substantial resourcing, which was made available very quickly um, in consideration to how governments usually work, at least anyway. Uh, collaboration was really well established. There was independent advice, which helped set up clear, justified objectives. And that allowed for, th for there to be really rapid on-ground response, which was critical because this was an emergency and that, that critical on-ground response was actually um, very much helped the recovery of much of nature. Ultimately, there'll be monitoring of uh, what worked and what didn't work, and there'll be longer term consequences and, and um, obligations. The Australian government had four main objectives um, for the recovery of biodiversity and threatened species. One was a much more short term one, which was trying to alleviate the suffering of injured animals but more um, over the longer term and more strategically to prevent extinction, to maximise long-term recovery and to ensure learning. 
Uh, so some of the things that were done, and many of these things actually have greatly helped um, recover species or increase the likelihood of recovery of those species. So there's initial response, which was uh, across many scales and fronts of treating injured wildlife, and the community was heavily involved in that. But then many of these other actions have also helped. So finding out where the unburnt refuge areas were, prioritising those species and sites that most needed conservation response, uh, provision of supplementary food in some cases, survey to see what was still there, and then protecting um, surviving populations from the threats that would have compounded the fire impacts. Um, so what lessons can we learn from these fires? I think the lessons are really uh, across a whole range of different spheres. And the policy and planning one, the most important one I think is that we didn't really sufficiently well identify where the key biodiversity assets were. Uh, that needed protection and include those assets, biodiversity assets, as matters to be protected in the fire operations. And we need to do better than that in the future. Uh, I think our resourcing of some of the fire response, you know, that fire response, Australia's fire response was great in many respects, but I don't think it was sufficiently resourced and prepared. Um, and we need to do better in the future, I think. Uh, we need to factor in catastrophic events into um, conservation planning. We haven't done that very well in Australia yet. Um, much of the fires affected Australia's magnificent forest estate, and I think we need to reconsider or reevaluate um, the conservation assets or the assets in that forest estate, how we use that estate, how we manage it, and how we ensure that the risks to that estate are uh, minimised and managed appropriately. We need to develop, I think, uh, regional recovery plans, but they've got to be more than recovery. Um, I don't think we'll be able to return to the state of nature was immediately before these fires. So I think we need, instead of recovery plans, recovery and beyond or conservation future plans at a regional scale. Um, ultimately, of course, we need to address the underlying cause of these fires and the magnitude of these fires and their catastrophic impacts on the economy, on communities and on the environment means that it indicates that Australia will pay dearly for climate change if it's left un unconstrained. So we do need to do our part to reduce global emissions. Uh, we were relatively well directed in our conservation response to these fires, but um, in some cases, key knowledge gaps were shortcomings in that response. And there's a whole range of different research activities and monitoring that we need to do better. And I think particularly, how can we manage fire more effectively without compromising nature? And, what, and making sure that we do know what has worked and what hasn't worked with recovery this time around. Uh, we do need to ensure that fire is one of many threats affecting Australian uh, biodiversity, and we need to manage all of those threats such, such to build resilience into our systems. We need best practice manuals. They weren't available um, for many parts of the recovery response this time around. So we need to make sure that, that they're ready and, and prepared to go next time. We need to spread the risk of conservation values better than we have in the past as well. Uh, governance is critical. Um, I think um, we muddled through to some extent this time around and um, developed really good systems, but we do need to, do need to be more proactive to, to, be in, to ensure who's responsible for what and to be better prepared for the huge amount of um, community interest in what can I do to help? And we should be able to direct that better than we did this time. Um, as you probably heard, the New South Wales Royal Commission today, I think, um, announced that clearing of land, of vegetation, was one of the critical components of uh, a bushfire response into the future. But we've got to make sure that we don't see the bush as our enemy. Um, we can't survive in this country if we live like that. So we do need to um, 
ensure that we have, uh, we consider social values um, much better in our response into the future. We must be better at nurturing our land. We must learn how better to live with and use fire than we have in the past. And we have many, obviously, um, experts who have known these lessons for thousands of generations. Um, and we do need to understand better living in this country, what it means and how we can use fire. Um, the bushfire response has been extraordinary um, from a whole range of community groups and um, globally. And it shows that we do care about nature and other people care about nature as well. And we should um, capitalize on that caring and recognize it. These bushfires were a dreadful event, um, but they are also an opportunity. Um, they show us the future, a dystopia, which we really do need to try to prevent. So it is provided us a frightening glimpse of a very bad future. And we, if we don't heed those lessons, so I think we do need to imagine our future, our country's future, and what legacies we'll leave for our future generations. And that's um, an opportunity that we have at the moment. Thank you. That was Threatened Species Recovery Hub Deputy Director, John Warnowski. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today we're listening to a discussion about the lessons from last summer's horror bushfire season and what we need to do to prepare for Australia's climate changed future. Next up, we're going to hear from Oliver Costello. Oliver is a Bundjalung man from northern New South Wales and the CEO of Firesticks Alliance. I'd just like to firstly start by acknowledging country and paying my respects to elders past, present and future, and particularly um, all the cultural fire knowledge holders, both past and present, that have um, informed me in the management of this land for, for millennia. Um, and as we can see, you know, like, Climate change is driving, you know, more extreme conditions and the impacts of those fires are devastating. And from a cultural point of view, it's really hard to see um, those impacts on country, knowing what I know and knowing how old people looked after these landscapes. And I know that climate change is driving a lot of these extreme fires, but it's very clear to me that there's a lack of appropriate fire regimes in all of these areas um, and that we need that to change. And that's really what... Um, what, where I started getting involved in this, learning about cultural fire management and, and eventually working through the fire sticks community practice to build recognition and awareness around the need to revitalise these practices. Um, this last bushfire season is a clear example of the importance um, of, of looking after country. You know, when we talk about fire management from a cultural point of view, it's about caring for country. It's about looking after the important, significant species and places, being able to actively burn in country that likes fire, and, and protecting country that doesn't like fire. And if you don't do that, this is what happens. You know, fire is, fire teaches us law for country. And if you don't follow that law, you end up with the scenario that we're in now. And, and for years to come, we're gonna be dealing with, you know, these impacts. And it's really important that we understand the lessons from now and we take them into the future. And I think drive the change that, that country deserves and we deserve if we wanna live in a res respectful way with country. And I guess what, you know, I think is critical in our clear, our clear platform is around um, culture-fired mentoring and training frameworks that can empower cultural knowledge. Um, so Indigenous-led, um, being able to rebuild that cultural authority on countries so that, you know, all Australians can engage um, with First Nations custodians around managing land, but doing it under their authority because that's really where we need to go back in time and, um, and, start and learn the lessons of the past, you know, like a lot of fire management today is a legacy of our old people's knowledge, but a lot of it's been misappropriated. 
So we need to like restore that uh, authority back into the community's hands and then work with everybody to be able to manage country um, in, a, in a good way. And that really requires, you know, a lot of people have been, you know, disconnected, moved off country and they need to be able to reconnect with country. And that might take, you know, years or decades or whatever, but it needs to, we need to start. And it's been, it started, you know, Fire Six has been able to develop a really comprehensive community of practice without really any resources and um, access to land. You know, um, most of these landscapes that are burned, if you're a traditional owner, you're really struggling to be able to get access to land unless you work for government. And then you have to use government frameworks and protocols and planning and policy. So it's really hard for us to be able to manage our country in, in, in the right way because we're being restricted. So, so getting those restrictions out of the way and, and that knowledge and practice in place, you only learn about fire by doing it. You know, that's the way you learn. Um, it's an experience-based knowledge system. So we need to support more people on country to, to burn and, and learn from these lessons and, you know, and get out and, uh, and in front of it, you know, deal with the changing climate, deal with these, these inappropriate fire regimes and, and adapt as our old people did for thousands of years and we will into the future. Where we've been able to implement cultural fire um, burns, um, you can see really good um, outcomes when fire comes in. And so, but you also see positive outcomes in the longer term as well. So it's not just a, you know, we're not talking, I'm not talking about hazard reduction burning. I'm talking about applying the right fire for that country that actually enhances the, the biodiversity and the, the, bend, the, you know, the abundance of species, um, but also reduces, you know, when you burn, you reduce fuel. Um, and it's, it gives you that opportunity to be able to manage the landscape um, through a long-term strategy to have mosaics um, and patchy areas that you burn in different country types so you can break the landscape up. So you don't have these huge fire runs um, that we're seeing. And that's largely been driven by inappropriate fire regimes, a lack of fire or introducing the wrong fire into lots of these areas. And you can see that over time without the exacerbating impacts of the extreme fire conditions, you see that happening. The fire is getting bigger, you get more homogenization of species. So there's these, these things that are driving it. There's other things you can do as well, um, which is really about trying to um, manage the landscape in a way that reduces um, the, the impacts of fire extent and running. So, you know, trail management, uh, asset protection around, um, you know, biodiversity, because that's one of the issues that I noticed in the stream that, um, you know, like when the fires are happening, there's a, there's a focus on life and property and, and that should be the case as well. But a lot of like biodiversity and cultural heritage doesn't, isn't in the planning framework so people don't know it's there so they're not doing mitigation work in the preparation of the bushfire season and when they're responding so getting that data in the risk management plans in the, the fire strategies up front is really critical and that's that's land management so getting that planning right great thanks oliver and uh, john yeah i'll very much defer to oliver for um his recognition of cultural appropriate burning um but I'd add also that it's got to be really spatially explicit and strategic so that we know that areas, a whole lot of Australian biodiversity is really dependent upon longer unburnt patches. So we must make sure that we can sort of do the um, burning in a manner which maintains or increases the extent of long unburnt patches rather than simply willy nilly burning the country. Um, we also must, uh, I guess, make sure that some of the the most flammable of our habitats, such as many of the forest environments, are managed in a way which is not inimical, inimical um, to um, biodiversity protection as well and doesn't sort of further increase the chances of fire happening in those environments. When I talk about fire management, I don't just mean burning, and that's a really important point you're picking up, John, is that 
yeah, there is that spatial kind of element to the planning and we use like country types. So looking at different ecosystems and species needs to understand what time of year or what time of season or over what, you know, multiple years that you would like to introduce fire. And that's how you get long unburnt country. But long unburnt country, you know, for, for our old people was around for a long time because they were burning around. That was one of the first lessons I ever learned was burning around rainforest in small isolated pockets, you know, in some parts of the country. Um, that rainforest just wouldn't persist if it wasn't for old people. And there's a lot of habitats that are highly dependent on skillfully managed fire. And as um, Daniel's saying, like, you know, there's a lot of great firefighters and land managers out there, but there's a huge um, barrier to be, being able to practice appropriate fire regimes for increasing risk. And this, least, this last bushfire season is seeing a whole more suppressive policy and risk management, which is going to lead to less burning when we really need more. And so that's the irony that we're working in. We're actually, our response to impacts is the wrong response. And we need to make that change. Otherwise we're just gonna be having this conversation and seeing more and more species and, and important places lost. I can totally understand that, you know, you reduce the fuel, then you reduce the risk, but it's the wrong way of looking at it. You know, like we're talking about our ancestor trees. We're talking about landscapes that are largely so volatile from fire because they've been cleared in the past and re the, this re regeneration, which we want to see because we want to see more biodiversity and stuff coming back, but we've got a lot of environments in transition. Um, and so it's just, to me, it's like, we need to be thinking to the future. We need fire management plans that think hundreds of years into the future so we can see our ancestor trees come back, you know, and, and how do we manage fire for that instead of sort of this short term kind of, we'll cut all the trees down. And, you know, vegetation management's important. Um, and, you know, and people need to be thinking about where they build houses and where we have assets. And, and it's not just a simple kind of um, approach. And I think, you know, people will need to understand their place and their responsibility. That was Bundjalung Man and Fire Six Alliance CEO, Oliver Costello. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Next up, we're going to hear a discussion between David Caroli, leader of the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub, John Wanowski, and bush heritage ecologist Vanessa Westcott about how we can help ecosystems recover from future bushfires that are inevitably coming. We're going to jump into the middle of the discussion, and the first person you're going to hear from is David Caroli. In the context of not just fire, but the background changes in temperature and rainfall are leading to substantial changes in the geographical preferred zones for different uh, threatened species, different uh, ecological zones for specific uh, plants, animals, birds, insects. They're changing. And what we're seeing is with the ongoing warming, there's been a, if you like, upward and poleward shift, not just in Australia, but all around the world in the sorts of ecological zones for many uh, ecosystems, and that is impacting threatened species. That sort of mapping is being done in the Threatened Species Recovery Hub by ecological scientists mapping the preferred zones for a range of different specific species, taking into account not just climate change data now, but climate change projections at fine spatial scales and mapping those into the future to plan for where would the preferred zones be likely be in 20 to 50 years in the future. John? Yeah, very much so, David. Thank you for that. It's a really fundamental and formidable challenge that we're facing in the future, how we protect species that are most clearly going to be affected by climate change and its consequent baggage of fire and the like. 
Um, there are things we can do. We can be more adventurous in our conservation translocations, move species from areas where they're currently occurring and they're quite happy at the moment, but where they won't be happy in 10, 20 years hence to areas where they'll, they'll be more likely to survive. There's protection of uh, places that will provide climate change refugia, um, such as um, some of uh, some uh, critical rainforest habitats, mountaintops and the like. Um, and there's also a need, I think, that we need um, to reduce the other pressures affecting these species. Climate change is one of a package of factors affecting many species. So if we can reduce the, the other threats through consistent, well-applied management of those threats, then we can make them a little bit more resilient to the climate change impacts that will otherwise affect them. Here's David Caroli again. I've had lots of uh, engagement with people when I'm giving talks in regional Victoria and regional New South Wales. Um, and one of the things that they've noticed as they get involved in revegetation, some of them now had commented to me that uh, maybe 20 years ago when Bush Heritage was first setting up, that the emphasis had been on revegetation using seed stocks from drawn from within 50 kilometers of the location. And for many of the people who were actively involved in the reforesting or revegetation were finding that it was failing because the seed stock really needs to now be drawn from 50 or 100 kilometers further north in a hotter environment so that it will now grow in that environment. In other words, choosing seed, uh, seed stocks which are already adapted to the changing climate as we see the climate zones moving southward uh, and, and what it means. And so I know that that's already changed within bush heritage, but it's an ongoing factor that we need to plan for climate change so that the, uh, if you like, the network of uh, ecosystems, the network of vegetation types is planned for the future climate, not what it was 20 years ago. Uh Absolutely. Um, so we have a really exciting project at our Nardu Hills Reserve in Victoria, where we're doing what we call climate adjusted provenancing, where we're, um, because we had a dieback of grey box and yellow box uh, and we needed to revegetate. And so we've gone to what we call climate analogues. We've gone to places where the climate is predicted to look like at Nardu Hills in 30 to 70 years. So those hotter, drier places and draw collect seed from those areas and try, we're doing a big trial there because it is, it has been a real shift. Previously, it was local provenance, local provenance, but we've got to think and be clever and adapt what we do. So we're really excited about, we're just starting to plant them now. So stay tuned, but I think that's a really important, those clever ways of thinking about, you know, and, and potentially more um, intensive interventions, uh, proactive thinking, we're going to have to get smarter and it's going to cost more and we're going to have to, but we've got to do it. That was Vanessa Westcott, ecologist at Bush Heritage Australia. If you want to listen to the full discussion from today's show or tune into future webinars from the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, visit the website at nespthreatenedspecies.edu.au. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's national environmental justice program. I'm Elsie Kennedy. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, please rate us and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting this program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR 
on Wurundjeri country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.